y'all this morning. Uh, welcome once again. Glad you're all here. I hope you had a, a good week. Um, hope you're uh, striving to uh, please the Lord in everything that we do and everything we're called to do. Uh, real quick before we get started this morning, I want to introduce uh, just a friend of mine, uh, Anthony Silvestro and his beautiful family are here today. He's right back here. Dr. Anthony uh, is a uh, you're a professional dentist, correct? And uh, which I already knew that, so I want to make sure I was saying it right. Um, but also, he's got a, a very influential, uh, prolific ministry. He's a creationist, and he, guy, knows his stuff. Probably one of the best I I know or ran into. Uh, a very good friend of mine, but he's been in ministry for quite some time now. Travels, he speaks, so he's in town. I believe doing a conference for a couple days. And it just so happened that he flew in today, and he is able to join us. So please, if you get a chance, um, say hello, um, introduce yourselves, and, and maybe pick his brain, talk to him a little bit. Uh, he's got some fascinating uh, ways to uh, encourage the church and reach out to the lost through his um, apologetics. So get a chance, talk to him, and introduce yourself to his to his family. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good to see you. Yeah. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, as we continue our journey through the first book of Samuel. We're going to be turning to chapter 14. Chapter 14. My original intention was to start from 31, but I'm going to start with 30, even though uh, Pastor Sean dealt with that uh, earlier, uh, last Sunday. I wasn't here. Um, but I'm going to pick up just to kind of give some context, and obviously we'll be fueled throughout this entire message with the entire story that has taken place here. It's very difficult to jump in in the middle of a chapter and not be able to address everything that's going on. So I'm going to start in uh, verse 30, reading from the King James Version this morning. How much more of happily the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. And they smote the Philistines that day from Michmas to Aegean, and the people were very faint. And the people flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people did eat them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord, in that they eat with the blood. And he said, Ye have transgressed. Then he goes on to say, Roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people, and say unto them, Bring me hither every man his ox, every man his sheep, and slay them here, and eat, and sin not against the Lord in eating with the blood. And all the people brought every man his ox with him that night, and slew them there. And Saul built an altar unto the Lord. That same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and spoil them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Then said the priest, Let us draw near hither unto God. And Saul asked counsel of God. He says, Shall I go down after the Philistines without deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he answered him, Not that day. And Saul said, Draw ye near hither all the chief of the people, and know and see wherein this sin hath been this day. For as the Lord liveth, which saveth Israel, though it be on 
being Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people that answered him. Then said he unto all of Israel, Be ye on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said unto Saul, Do what seemeth good unto thee. Therefore Saul said unto the Lord God of Israel, uh, Give a perfect lot. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to the people, Tell me what thou hast done. And Jonathan told him and said, I did but taste a little honey with the end of my rod that was in my hand, and lo, I must die. And Saul answered, God do so and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid, as the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not. Then Saul went up from following the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for this time. Lord, I appeal to you this morning. I ask you, God, that you would help me for the glory of your Son, not my own, that this message would penetrate the hearts of your people. And Lord, that we would put, a, put away any distractions, any troubling thoughts, anything that would keep us, Lord, from being able to hear what it is that you'd have to say to us this morning. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. And so be it. First of all, I think the safest place to start out here, um, those of you that are joining us for the first time this morning or haven't been keeping up, um, it's a good place to start. I think that would be, you don't have to turn to it, but it would be 1 Samuel chapter 8 kind of gives us the premises of why we've reached the area in which we've reached today in reading these verses and the things that we have seen over the last month as we saw Saul's ministry in action and left us scratching our head. We can go back to this reality of when all the troubles began. In 1 Samuel 8, 7, uh, the Bible says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, dealing here right in Moses' time, since that day that they've been delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians, they have forsaken God. It's been a continual pattern of rejection consistently. He says, they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice, however you shall solemnly forewarn them, and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And these last few messages have been about the behavior of Saul, exactly what God said. His behavior, I know he goes through a, uh, a menu of the things that you've got to watch out for, but in essence, it's from a tyrant. All those things really characterize a tyrant. You know, and so what we're seeing in these particular verses that we're reading this morning is that same behavior being played out on the people of God. But let us not forget, the people of God wanted this. So before we point our fingers at Saul, it's easy to do, right? It's always easy to point the finger at the leader that you voted in, 
And now you're going to complain when the reality is this is what you wanted. This is what you get. This is what God said would happen. But yet you still, still says in verses um, 8, in chapter 8, verses 19 and 20 says, Nevertheless, after explaining them what was going to happen, people still refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But we'll have a We'll have a king for us, just like the rest of the kings around the world. We want a king like everyone else, so he can judge us, and so he can go out before us, and he can fight our battles. Well, we've seen what happens when this kind of ministry is unleashed on the people. Right? We can see any kind of ministry that's grounded in self-sufficiency, grounded in pride, grounded in self Right, it becomes personality-driven leadership uh, is the most dangerous leadership of all when it's built upon a person outside of Christ. Anybody that builds a ministry around themselves, whether that be a king, whether it be an official, whether it be a pastor of a church or a leader of any organization, when they build it around themselves, it, it you know, generally it will fall to pieces because it has no, it has no ground, it has no stability. I want to highlight three warning signs uh, this morning of compromised leadership because this is really where we are in this chapter. So this is really what we're dealing with. You think, well, yeah, there's compromised leadership all through Scripture. Absolutely. But there are some signs here that um, can be detected, you know, that we need to learn how to detect before we get sucked into something that could be unbiblical. It may not be here, God forbid. Right, but it's it could be anywhere that you are getting ready to make a decision to do something, and your decision is a, is based on erroneous um, ideals or uh, erroneous views, and you step into something you're like, man, I wish I would have never gotten involved in this mess, right? But you also you don't want to be that person who is deceived and thinking that you're a godly, wholesome leader and you're not. Okay, because that can be more devastating. When you're sitting there saying, well, listen, I'm the pastor. I got this title. I got this importance on me. So, you know, it, it's like it's like you, you lose sight of the reality of what it truly means to be biblically appropriate in your leadership. It's so extremely important. It's so detrimental on everybody else. And this is where I really want to deal with uh, three points um, uh, from our text. And the first one is I really want to deal with, number one, if you're taking notes, fainting armies a fainting army why in the world was Saul's people fainting under his leadership number two I want to deal with imposing unjust laws putting things in it's not the word of God right being driven by emotion driven by selfishness and you're not driven by sola scriptura you're not driven by God's word you're driven by yourself and the last point I want to look at is violent jealousy that shows up in our lives. Think, well, you know, I'm a little envious over this person. But there's some stuff inside of you that literally, if you were unleashed, you would do some pretty terrific things, tragic things, in order to get your own way if you could get away with it. And we got to be careful. We always got to check ourselves and make sure, listen, you know, are the people underneath me, are they well? Are they healthy? Am I healthy? Um, number two, imposing stuff that God never has written. Like we would talk this morning, fundamentalism, you know, this idea that we can bring laws in and impose them on the people of God. And they're not they're not from Scripture. They're just from your personal preference, usually from legalism. 
And then obviously being, you know, obviously violently uh, jealous and, 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 and being jealous of, of other people that may have be in a position that you're not in. And or someone does something that's actually has a lot of influence, then you're upset because you're not doing that. So you've got to scurry around and compensate and start doing a bunch of unnecessary things to try to make yourself look more spiritual in front of people. And it doesn't work. It just you just get more disrespect, right? No, everybody hates someone, you know, fooling around doing something or another another church meeting, right? When he should be out in battle, right? Should be out doing something um, other than. You know, you see these pastors on Facebook all day. It's like, really? You're getting a salary for being on Facebook all day? It must be pretty nice, you know? <laughs> Interesting. But anyway, it's just those things. So let's look at the first point, fainting armies. Verse 31 says that they had just returned from driving. Now, think of this just... For a moment, grab a hold of these words for just a second and think through this. Okay, they had just returned from driving their enemies, the Philistines, from Michmash all the way to Ajalon. So the people were faint. So between Michmash and Ajalon is 20 miles. Okay, you've ever walked 20 miles before in your life? I mean, not separately throughout the week, but you ever took one... Let's just say today we're going to have you walk to Bedford, you know, or something like that. I mean, maybe even further. I'm not sure 20 miles, but Euless maybe. You're going to be completely destroyed. But this you're just walking. You can walk and, you know, I'm talking about driving a relentless energy that quadruples the size of your own army. And you push that army all the way back for 20 miles. Could you imagine that? And the pain and the stress and how fatigued they must have been, right? And all of this could have been, the pain could have been lifted a little bit if you just let the guys eat. God provided honey for them to eat. And they were told, no, 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 no. You, you can't have that. You know, that's that's bad because I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this fast and I want all you guys. It really was. I mean, this faintness that they went through was really was slavery. It really was. It was really oppressive. I mean, could you imagine people that are on your side that you are literally causing these poor people who are fighting for the freedom of your country, fighting under your leadership, and you have the audacity to starve them? I mean, what kind of person is this? It's either he's immature or he's unconverted. You don't do this to the people of God. You don't do this to the church of God. You don't cause people to have to unwillingly carry stuff that the leader himself doesn't want to deal with. Usually a fainting army is the result of a fainting leader, and that's exactly what we saw here. From the very in, you know, introduction of Saul's ministry, he's fainting right off the bat. Not good fainting. I mean, the Bible never really looks at fainting as a good thing. Fainting is usually seen as something that's negative. Um, in Proverbs 24.10 says, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Now when you first read that, you read it from a self-help perspective, right? You think of, oh, if I faint in the day when God tries me, you know, then my strength, I have no strength, my, I got weak faith or no faith. That's not what the, is that actually not what that actually is communicating, even though that's what is written. 
Um, and the LXX or the Septuagint uh, actually varies. I think it's a more correct rendering. Gill agrees with this as well. Uh, most commentators do. Uh, the Septuagint, again, varies from the received text. But it, it, it translates this verse like this. He shall be polluted in an evil day and in a day of affliction until he fail or die. So what does that mean? It's basically saying that because they've been polluted with evil in the day of affliction, that they will not persevere. They'll be wiped out, and then they will most definitely faint. And this is exactly what we've seen. Basically, it means because of thy fainting, thy strength will be small. Want of courage will cause want of strength to meet the emergency. This is what it's dealing with. It's not talking about the person himself not being able to do what God has called them to do under the power of God's grace. But it's showing you what, what happens when you faint under a polluted, drinking from a polluted well, such as Saul's leadership. This is what he's talking about. And then you see, obviously, you read and study. I don't know if you've ever studied battle fatigue, the psychological effects from battle fatigue. You know, you, World War I, they came back. They had these bodily movements that they couldn't control. They had severe panic and all these types of things. But one of the biggest things that they, what would cause this was fatigue. Fatigue is really dangerous. I think it was Vincent Lombardi said that fatigue makes cowards out of us all. Never make a decision on a fatigued mind. Any of you know, right? You're really fatigued, really wiped out. You're emotional, you're sensitive, you're touchy. And you cannot even think of making a decision that's costly or valuable. Always wait until that fatigue passes. Wait till you've got a healthy mind full of vitality. Then you can think it through without being overly emotional or operating from a place of fatigue, which is always very deceptive to the mind. So we always want to make sure we come, uh, come fresh. Being worn out from battle or being wiped out after a major victory is completely acceptable, right? I mean, being worn out or exhausted after a hard day's work is normal and should be expected. But fainting because of an unethical decision made by sour, immature leadership is quite another matter altogether. And notice here in the word it says not just faint per se, but it says, but very faint. We're not just talking about fainting now. We're talking about a very fainting. You know, like he's, he's bringing in that word to really offer an extreme, uh, an exaggerated view of this, which is actually true. They were severely faint. Have you ever been severely faint from being famished or super just ridiculously hungry because you've worked hard all day and you just cannot wait to get refueled, get some rest, get something to eat. Um, I mean, faintness can also come, obviously, in the form of persecution. It can come in the form of being thrown in prison. I mean, there are things here that are going to drive us, but it is the, 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 the verses and holding on to Christ, looking to Christ, living for Christ, that does enable us to persevere through those types of trials. But this type of trial could have been prevented. This was really a man-invoked trial based upon a man who was extremely competitive. Are extremely jealous of other people doing anything kind of courageous, even to the point of wanting to murder his own son. 
You think of that jealousy, and you get a little bit why the Pharisees were said in the, in the New Testament, where the Pharisees were envious over Christ. It's where that hatred goes into murder. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill this person, and this is really, you know, um, really. The story behind behind Saul's life. In 24, it says the men of Israel were distressed, which means that they were anxious and suffering, and that they were troubled, troubled over an oath King Saul had placed upon them, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to the forest, and there was honey on the ground, literally dripping from the trees, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Here the honey is really described as being upon the ground, and dropping from the trees. One historian writes, the forest literally flow with honey. Large combs may be still seen hanging on the trees as you pass along full of honey. So you get this idea, right? It's just like this. It's not the forbidden fruit, though. This is like you can't you parallel this with, 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 with the garden because Saul's oath was, was generated from his own selfish pride. This God was supplying food for his army that was driving his enemies out of there. And honey, you all know, if you study it, uh, has properties in it that enable us. It's like the perfect food in a lot of ways. Um where it really gives us the extra stamina and it would have really helped them as we've read of Jonathan as well. And it says here in verse 27, but Jonathan had not heard the oath. So he took the tip of his staff, dipped it in some of the honey and ate it. And his countenance revived and he was strengthened. Well, we've got to ask ourselves this question. I know we're going back through the verses that uh, Brother Sean had went through last Sunday, but I think to gather the context, it's just important that we go through these. We've got to ask ourselves, why didn't Jonathan hear the oath? Because that's the first thing that came to my mind when I was reading, well, why, where was he? Why didn't he hear the oath? Well, we know he didn't, you know, he didn't get the king's permission to attack the Philistines, so this could be the reason why he didn't hear the king's oath. Because he stepped out in faith. He did what the king should have been doing. You know what I mean? This is where I think a lot of the jealousy came in. And I ultimately think this came to the point where he wanted to murder his own son. It wasn't based upon his oath. It wasn't based upon any of his piety. It was based upon his jealousy and the competitive spirit that we see Saul have throughout his entire biography of his life. It's this constant hatred for other people getting more attention than he gets. Jonathan acted in faith. Jonathan won that battle. I mean, it was God who fought it, but God fought through Jonathan's faith. It was Jonathan who gets the credit, and his dad knows it. And he knows the influence that one man in a congregation can have over the army when he's behaving in a way that the leader should be behaving. He gathers influence, right? Because, hey, this guy's doing what you should have been doing. Now you want to wipe him out and take him out because he's getting all the attention that you would like. And then he tries to piggyback upon Jonathan's good deeds, like taking all the credit from his son. His son's doing all these things, not taking the credit. He's just doing it, right? And, of course, the jealous, insecure leader has got to feel this almost like, you know, the, the, the insecurity and they battle that insecurity by compensating, by looking spiritual. Make me an altar. Do all these things. Call the priest, you know. Number the people. Who's not on the roll? All these things that are not necessary right now. Get your rear end out there and fight with your men. Lead your men. 
You're the king. Jonathan's your son. He's behaving like a king. You're behaving like an absolute unconverted Israelite. This, this is exactly what we saw happen. So this is it. You know, he, the reason why he probably didn't hear it is because he jumped the Philistines by faith. God rewarded him. God blessed him. So therefore, he was busy fighting while his dad is busy, busy blabbering to the rest of the army about how mad he was and how you know we needed to follow him. And 28 says, Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Curse to the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Another translation in the Arabic says it this way, translated this way, My father has sinned against the people, hath done them injury by forbidding them to eat. That's exactly, look at his own son uh, exposing him. Which, you know it's bad when your family starts exposing you to the people. You know, it's kind of like an unrepentant person won't repent. So the family feels desperate. So they go to the elders and they go to the church or whatever and say, Hey, this guy's just not functioning and he's troubling the church. He's troubling the people of God. He's no good. I love him. He's my dad. But at some level, I had to expose him to help him. Right? Saul is like, I mean, literally backwards and everything. He's fasting when he should be feasting. He's barking out commands that are not from God when he should be obeying the commands of God. He's totally insecure. Therefore, he has to make himself look as important and as spiritual as possible without looking like a fool and a coward, which he is actually both of those. You know, I just like to say this real quick just so we can kind of come out from under this view. I don't know if it's... Um, it's just as spiritual at times to feast as it is to fast. You know, spirituality is always tied into the guy that doesn't eat or the woman who doesn't eat who fast. Everyone looks at them like they're spiritual superheroes, right? Well, Christ in Matthew 6, who did he point out those types of people? And they wanted the glory of men. It was the Pharisees, right? They would... They, they, um, they were... They, the fasting, the, the giving, and all these things, their good works, were all there to be what? To be seen and applauded by men. They wanted to be seen doing all of these things. But the reality is, is that um, it's just really... Fasting is a, is a spiritual thing. Jesus does say, moreover, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with sad faces, for they disfigure their faces, that they may be seen by men to be fasting. Most certainly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Obviously, hypocrisy isn't just about disfiguring your face and trying to look pious, so others will look at you and say, wow, um, how he's so spiritual. But Saul's hypocrisy took the form of trying to look spiritual to cover up his void of being a biblical God-ordained leader. It was really his hiding place. It's his hiding place. And many, many of us, if we're honest, will hide behind a facade at points of your life. I'm not saying your total Christianity is a facade. And I'm not saying, I, I'm not reading any of your mail this morning. But I'm saying this, that there are those of us who know, and me included, that would turn to spiritual disciplines to hide our lack and void of being biblical and honest in other areas of our lives. You know, so okay, let's just say you're not being the man you should be at home. Oh, but he can preach well. Oh, but he can evangelize well. Oh, he can do these all these 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 church things so well. But he's a, he's a beast to his family. I had a friend of mine 
way back in the day when I first started street preaching, uh, he had told me that his dad ran a soup kitchen when he was a young boy. And he said his dad could go out and he could literally feed hundreds of people with soup. He would watch his dad pray with other people and do all these things when he did go out. But he said when his dad was home, he never prayed with his kids, never opened the Bible in his home, never served the family at all. But yet when he was out doing his soup kitchens, he was Mr. Godly, humble, loving everybody in sight. But as soon as he got home, he was a beast. He was an animal to his family. So the, this the hypocrisy and the deception of spiritual things, even ministries, people sometimes want to start a ministry out of a lack or a compensation for being biblical in other arenas of their life it becomes a safe place for them it becomes almost like a like a penance you know and if we're not careful we can put all of our stock into our ministry or our preaching talents and totally neglect our families totally neglect other people totally neglect the lost never talk to anybody that's unsaved or lost or going how we never evangelize I mean, that too is a really a hypocritical standard as well. As Christians, we're on this earth to be a light in dark places, salt to the earth. This is why we're here. Uh, to, I mean, I hate to inform everybody, but the church is here to reach people who don't know Christ. You know, as much as church is enjoyable, and this is necessary. It's all designed for the edification, the building up of the church, but not just to build us up so we can go sit on the couch all week, but so we can be out activated in our faith. It doesn't mean you've got to be on the streets Saturday. I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying in general, that should be a spillover of our lives. The Bible says in verse 30, how much better, Jonathan says, how much better would it then because he tasted honey and it brightened up his countenance. How much better it would have been if the people would have eaten freely. Let him eat. How much better would this success have been if only? You know, now, now, to, now what we have here is that, you know, these guys are, you know, these guys have been fasting and they've been fighting when they should have been feasting. And the Bible's covered, you know. From the very beginning introduction of the Bible, we see someone falling because of eating. But then we see the book of Revelation where it ends the triumph meal with the lamb, right? I mean, there are victorious, there's times to eat that are just as spiritual as when you don't eat. Don't let anybody fool you. If they're telling you they fast all the time, they might as well just forget it because they're not doing anything because they've received their reward, right? Because they're doing it for attention and they're doing it to look spiritual and they want you to look at them like there's something that you're not. And it's not it's not why we just we fast for the glory of Christ, so more of our flesh is killed and more of the spiritual element of our lives can shine. We die daily, Paul said. And I think when we meet with the our Creator, meet with our God in prayer, it it, it changes us. And molds us and shapes us. And when we dine unto the Lord, it's just as spiritual as even like the communion or whatever it may be. It's equally spiritual as fasting. So let us not go too far with this idea that, you know, Saul, you know, this thing he wanted to fast for his for his people wasn't any, had anything to do with his people. Had everything to do with him. He wasn't fighting much anyway, so he's probably certainly fine to fast that amount of time. But the other guys who was actually doing the real work probably were starving to death, which they were. Anyhow, um, 
just clarifying Saul's ridiculous oath and just somewhat elevating his fast above the one that is prescribed in Scripture. And I don't know about you, but some of the nastiest people that I've met in my Christian life when I turned 20, 28 are those that seem to pray all the time, fast all the time, and know the entire Bible by heart. They have literally been the most hateful people I've ever met in my life. I've encountered in my life. Should we memorize the Bible? Absolutely. Should we pray heavily and consistently and agonize? Absolutely. Should we fast? Absolutely. But some of the people that I know personally in my own Christian walk, the ugliest, nasty, most hateful people I've ever met are have been people who have been the most intelligent people in Scripture that I've known. They know the Bible inside and out. They've fasted, but they're as ugly as sin, and they hate the people of God. And they continually fight and start fights with every single Christian they know over whatever. You know what I'm talking about. If you've been on Facebook for a while, you pick that up real fast. But you know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Have you guys all ran into that person before? Though he every he's always he knows every little thing, right? Yeah, but then you look at his home life and it's a complete disaster. It's like something is not what is this saying, Lord? It just says that an immature person can know the word of God. Can hey, you can memorize, great. Doesn't mean you're converted. Doesn't mean you're mature. It means you're immature with a lot of knowledge. And that's extremely dangerous. We want to be in the opposite realm. We want to be humble. We want to know the word inside and out. Don't get me wrong. It's not what I'm not saying. But we want to be able to do it. We're empowered by the love of God. Right? We want to be empathetic and compassionate. You don't want to be a know-it-all. Okay? Because that's no I had one guy call me out of the blue one time for two hours on the phone. He screamed and yelled at me the whole time. And he was like one of my really close friends. And he was extremely smart. And I just couldn't get over it. And I hung up the phone. I'm like, I have never in my entire life have ever been yelled at like that or talked to like that from the world from the world not even from my, the, my most hated enemies growing up never called me the names and spoke to me like that like this man did i've never had ever experienced anything quite like it to this day so we got to be careful we just have to be careful i mean they just got done driving their enemies for 20 miles which brings us you know um to this reality i mean they rushed on the spoil, they took the sheep and oxen and calves, slaughtered them, ate them on the ground, and the people ate the blood. So literally you see, like these people literally tearing this flesh off these animals, you know, and I, some of the commentaries I read were saying that the, the animal meat was even like um, raw and bloody. And just, I mean, could you imagine being that hungry? I mean, it reminds you of some of these stories, you guys all read them, people get out of prisons for years, or they get it, or like they're like they're lost, and they just eat things you, that you never thought in a million years you'd eat. When you're starving and half-crazed, you will eat anything. So this whole thing of, hey, yeah, now they're, now they're a fainting army, and now you're going to sit there and condemn them. It isn't right to eat the, eat the, eat the meat this way, which we'll, we'll get into, which our second point is having a double standard. You're hypocritical. First, you got the fainting army, and now we have number two would be the double standard. Being hypocritical. So Saul said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a stone to me this day. Everything's about him. You know, everything's about him. The fast is all about him and my enemies. We're going to do this, my fast. And, you know, everything's all about, you know, him. Roll a stone unto me this day. You know, I get it. It's, it's bringing it to him. But 
this whole idea, I mean, it's the first time he's actually, I believe, have ever built an altar. So in some respects, it looks holy. It looks great. I mean, look at he's building this huge altar. Um, Saul, Saul says, you are the one who has dealt treacherously against God and his people. Who is the one that's dealt treacher treacherously with God and his people? Who is the one? Is it them? Or who else is it? You roll the stone over here for an altar. It's for you, Saul. It's not for your people. You know, this whole idea, I'll just roll the stone over here. I can't believe you people would ever be doing this. Give me, my goodness. You have no self-control. You know, and then here's, you know, the whole thing here um, is really, I think, the whole altar. Um, and I think the Lord not answering him, all these things, I don't think it had anything to do with Jonathan's sin. I think it had everything to do with his sin. It was him. It was him. He was the guilty man. You are the man, as Nathan said to David. It was him that was was in trouble here. You know, Deuteronomy 12, 23 really prohibits this idea of eating meat this way. As Glenn was here, I was going to harass him about the raw horse meat. We had a, never mind. We'll save that for another day. You can ask me after service about that one. If I was going to eat any kind of raw meat, it would probably, if I had to, which I don't like any raw meat, it would probably be fish. If I, if I had to. The worst thing ever I could ever imagine eating in my entire life would be raw horse meat. <laughs> Cooked horse meat? Maybe with a gun to my head. But I'm talking raw. I'm talking about ripping the, the skin off, pulling the meat out, and then eating it. Man, I couldn't even, I couldn't even imagine swallowing that. 34, Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar. Obviously, this is an altar he was wanting to build to the Lord. Just shows you how guilty God-forsaken people can still do spiritual things. It almost seems like they're getting away with it, right? Guilty religious people like to busy themselves by either meddling in the lives of others or driven to performance addiction. These things can be disguised easily under the facade of false zeal. The most spiritual thing that Saul could have done was to get involved where the need was instead of trying to look spiritual by pointing out the faults of others. Doesn't it always seem to be the case? He's a guilty man, but instead of going, I humbly confess I was wrong, I've sinned against God, let's make an altar. You know, I own this thing. But instead, blame. Blaming them. You know, he, he won't take the... You know, I think one of the most respectful things a leader can do is own up to his guilt or own up to something in front of other people. Like, I mean, it's... it's um, you know, it's one of those things like, hey, if I... Or even a man in his home. If you've screwed up, you've done something. Um, I mean, that's a law of our own home. If I... Which I blunder a lot. My wife, you know, always appreciates it if I... If I bring the family together and if they are all subjected to my sin, then I need to repent in front of them and ask for forgiveness. Because this gives, it shows them that their dad's not perfect, but their dad knows he's a sinner and needs forgiveness. And I think it teaches them a lot than trying to 
have this facade in front of them that dad never sins, he's perfect. And then he's yelling at everybody all the time because he's guilty of his own sin, right? And it happens. So we always got to be willing to take on that uh, for ourselves and be willing to confess our sin when we've done wrong and not push it off on other people or start a ministry, you know? Story shows how both lifestyles can be mixed together, both a worldly mindset and God's will. Saul's greatest fight isn't against the Philistines. It's against his own kingdom and the kingdom of God. He is literally fighting against God. He's competing against God. You know, many times he was asked to do something or told and commanded, sorry, commanded to do stuff by Samuel. He didn't do it. He did it his own way. He's just saying my way is better than God's. It's really, at the end of the day, the struggles between him and God, which shows up in the relationships that you have with other people. This is tragic. The heart is deceitful above all things. And this is, this is one of those great points. 36, Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them into the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, which is good, so glad the priest steps in and says, let us draw near to God. And that's the right route. You don't, you know, it's, it's, it's not a congregationally led situation here. You know, this is more of, you know, those who are in these certain roles functioning from these spots. So Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not, God, did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. All right, so to our third and last point, violently jealous. Violently jealous. I use the word violently because I think when you just say jealous sometimes, people don't really look at it like, ah, we're all, we're all jealous. This is really a jealousy that literally had in it a point of murdering his own son. You know, he's going to murder Jonathan. You know what? This, it, 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 I mean, we'll get into this, but the, the, the nature of his jealousy was really an opportunity, a door open for him to take this guy out. You know you got a bad jealousy problem you're willing to kill one of your family members, kill your parents over it, right? There's something, you know, he's going to kill his kid over it. You know, so you know that anytime we have... The point where we're so jealous that we take out the person close to us over just our jealousy, it's, you're being violently jealous. 39 says, For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Why is he already saying that? Out of the abundance of the heart, right? What? The mouth speaks. Why is he already talking about that? I'm just curious. No one's been found guilty yet. So I'm just curious, you know, how this happened, you know. So why does he already have this on? And then 40 said, then he said of all of Israel, you be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect law. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Think about that. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die? 
I mean, he sees the just the preposterous um, command. Saul answered, God do so, and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Could you imagine being there that day? After just experiencing an army that had no weapons, two weapons in the army, it was Saul and Jonathan, right? And could you imagine seeing Jonathan and his armor bearer just totally just taking on this huge Philistine army? Obviously, God made everything tremble, made everything shake, put the fear of God in everybody. God won that battle, but Jonathan stepped out in faith and seeing all that. And now your dad, who was sitting under a tree, doing who knows what, right? Not even in the battle, and then trying to be spiritual through the whole thing, and then wanting to murder his son at the end, where he should be saying, thank you for doing what I haven't been doing. Thank you for stepping in where I haven't been. That should have been the right, humble response to someone who's really taken on your duty as a leader. How embarrassing. You should be ashamed of yourself, Saul. Now you want to now you want to murder him? So you can see right off the bat here that his drive and decision to take out his son was all based upon this idea that people would look at him in a certain way. And that's how dangerous it is. Self-deception like that is extremely dangerous. And this is how dangerous it can be when we live our lives in such a way. Let me check this one out. 1 Samuel chapter 18, 6 and 9. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, I'll read it. Read it either way. Now it had happened as they were coming down when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. You can almost imagine what that looked like, right? What a, what a like, joyful time. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul is slain as thousands and David is ten thousands. What happens to Saul? Well, Saul became very angry. And the saying displeased him and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Look at that, like, then in, we read 1 Samuel 20, verse 33. It says, Then Saul, check this out, hurled his spear at Jonathan to kill him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to kill David. You want to follow that to its logical conclusion, you would see Jonathan means nothing to him. Taking out Jonathan, if the people would not have saved Jonathan, Jonathan would have been murdered by his father, and the murdering would have been on his father, and his father should have died. Because he didn't kill the man justly. He murdered him from a heart of hatred. That's what the Bible says, do not kill. Ten Commandments doesn't mean do not kill in the sense of taken life. It means do not murder. Is there the right translation for that? Because it's an issue of the heart. Killing is not a sin. If killing's done to preserve life. But killing because you're jealous or envious is murder. He would have been guilty of murder he would have also had to be killed. It's true. So he hurled the spear at Jonathan because he was covering up David, hoping the spear at that point would have killed him, right? Second attempt on Jonathan's life. So you can kind of see this guy and his, his, his um, behavior is obviously indicative of what was done earlier when he was chosen from a sinful, sinful, for a sinful reason. 
as such. 46, last verse, and then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So I want to deal now really quickly with the remedy. I mean, you look at all of this, you read through all of this, and I, it, it is true, when you're, when you're going through a book, you get a lot of regurgitation of the same things, right? You hear a lot of the same stuff. Um, we don't want to grow numb to that. We don't want to grow hard of hearing. And we don't want to get bored. We want to hear what God would have to be speaking to us today. We want to read these verses with a thought in mind. How do they apply to me? How do they apply to my own life? Personalize it into your own life. And look at yourself um, through these points. Of, are those around you fainting? Are the people that you have influence over as a Christian, you have to be a leader, but anybody you have influence over, what kind of relationship do you have with them? What does their lifestyle look like based on the things that you have caused them uh, under your friendship, right? I mean, we all influence people for the good or for the bad, right? You do influence people. Every single one of us do. But the people that you are direct contact with, what is the response to their lives with you being around them? Is it better or is it lousier? You know what I mean? Do you cause that person to go deeper into sin or further away? Or do you, do you, are, you a, are you a beacon of light when you come into a situation? Being a truth teller. That may cost you rejection. may cost you a lot of things. But we've got to make a decision that we're not that person causing preventative uh, fainting in other people. Saul caused this on the people. It should have never happened. He sinned greatly against God, you know, to the point where um, literally almost destroyed everything. It could have been much better. The, the victory would have been better, but it wasn't about the victory of the nation. It was about Saul's personal victory of getting all the attention and looking like he was the authority in all of this. He was more concerned about that than the health of his own people, which is terrible. But the only people got what they deserved as well because they picked this guy. So we want to make sure that we're, we're really being careful. We don't want to be double standard in our lives. You, ever, you get people that always point out sin all the time, but then you look at their own lives and they're doing all the same things that they're telling you not to do. You ever had that before? Like, you know, it just seems like there's a double... Or you're doing... You're dealing with a double standard. Maybe you think that you... you maybe you have a glaring... Maybe you're partially blinded to your own fault lines, right? And your blind spots. And you live in a certain way where no one can correct you. When you're corrected, how do you behave? Just curious. You can ask yourself that question. Ask yourself this question. And think of the times where you've been corrected, biblically. How is your response towards that? Did you, oh, no, 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 just get off the altar. We need to make a, you know, a sacrifice to God for your sin. No, what about your sin? You know what I mean? You're the guilty one, Saul. So we don't want to be the Saul in that point where we're the ones constantly critiquing everybody. And then they look at your life and they're like, wow, you're, you're, you're actually a bigger mess than myself. Uh, third point is that we've got to be careful of, of, of being jealous people. You know, being jealous of other people. Operate in the old... Okay. Let's just use this for an example. Women uh, are husbands and wives, right? They're both equal in value, but there's an order to things, which God has set an order that doesn't change. 
If you just function, a woman would function in her own jurisdiction and not try to jump into the man's jurisdiction and try to operate there, uh, the marriage goes much smoother. And if the man stays in his jurisdiction and allows the woman to operate her jurisdiction, not try to jump over hers, it just functions biblically in how it should work. Same with the church, same with any kind of leadership. We always got to find out where it is that I'm serving, stay within the confines of your jurisdiction, and things generally go, would go normal. He cursed them with an oath that was of man. They weren't cursed based on his thing. It had nothing, it had no bearing on anything. The whole situation there with Jonathan and all of that was really almost pointless because he was the man in unrepentant sin. And he was pointing out everybody else's sin. I'd like to remind you this really quick. In Isaiah 4.31 it says, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and they shall not faint. And this is our, our dear Lord. Yeah, we're going to faint. We're going to feel like fainting many times and all this. But just remember, our Lord never faints. He's never fainted once. He's never worried once. Nothing's ever thrown him off course. Your sin hasn't thrown him off course. You cannot outsin the grace of God. You just can't. Um, the Bible says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from what? The curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it is said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So if you are in Christ, you are his, you are born again, you are a believer, you're resting in the perfect work of Christ from a biblical definition, then you're not cursed. And you can't be cursed. You are, you are in Christ. Yeah, you're going to see the damages of a fallen, cursed world because you live in it, right? And we have our bodies that are dying. And you're going to see all kind of malfunctions go on there as well. But once again, just remember when it comes to your standing with God. But if you're not, if you're not in Christ, you remain under the curse of death. Really, you remain under that. And that's a terrifying place to be. Because if you die with that, you fall under God's curse for all eternity. You are literally fall under God's wrath forever. Under his displeasure forever. You know, you can shrug it off, roll your eyes, laugh at it, you know. You can do that now and get away with it. Just like Saul got away with it for a while. You can do that. and But there's going to come a day and an hour where God alone knows the day you're going to die. And God has a million ways to take people off this planet. And most of the time, 90% of the time, you don't get a deathbed experience. So you're just taken out some way you weren't ready for. As a believer, you're always ready. As an unbeliever, that happens to you. There's no coming back. Hell has no exits. It's over. It is set. You will never return. There's no purgatory. You're not going to sit down there somehow and be, you know, purged until you can come out. This is really a, an issue to where um, you better get it right. I'm not saying you are the ones going to nail it down, but you hear the word preached. If you've not repented of your sin, put your faith in Christ. Trust in him alone. Therefore, if you do that, the scriptures tell us that we pass from death to life, from darkness to light. We're no longer um, under the curse of God, under his wrath, but we step under his authority, his kingship authority, and he rules and he reigns over our life. 
If you haven't done that, I would appeal to you today to repent of your sin. What does that mean? It means turn away from going your way, like Saul here, and go God's way and have faith and trust in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Now, this is my uh, always my prayer. Uh, anyone in here that doesn't know the Lord, what a, what a great tragedy that you would die in your sin when you hear the gospel preached and you sit under the word of God. Parents that bring your children into the to church, you know, you're doing a great service for your children by subjecting them to the word of God. You know, so let us all continue to pray and seek the Lord and ask him to restore us to a healthy faith and cause all those who aren't saved in our congregation to come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I'm just so grateful that we uh, we have this time together. Um, Lord, to hear your word preached and to glory in Christ and to fellowship with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.